Welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Dan George. Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics generative AI, data orchestration, and employee listening tool on the market. To learn more, book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct. There is a very interesting subset of individuals in Nashville that not only were in or still play music, but also played tuba, trombone, or trumpet that I know like personally around town. So it's, it's, a, it's a very real like additional silo that a lot of a, a lot of data analytics people actually get into because music is very much you know in a similar discipline if you think about it in terms of you know the mathematics you know statistics all that they all come you know founded by a bunch of rules that uh, you know have calculations well music also has a ton of rules right you have keys yeah. you have clefts you have uh, you have notes, right? And you have to combine the right notes to make it sound good, right? Uh, kind of similar discipline. So I think a lot of people that were in music or you know, just didn't really make it in music, like analytics, science, data, it's, it's a pretty good tangent. I, I never really considered the Nashville brass instrument scene either, right? Uh, it's, it's pretty huge. You know, there's Tuba Christmas, there's uh, brass <laughs> choirs, there's all sorts of that maybe have you ever seen tuba christmas they have one in dallas so on uh i guess christmas day or christmas eve all the santas come out and they you know play all the carols with tubas yeah fascinating <laughs> have you ever been to that cole like uh, tuba christmas taking <laughs> i i think this is one of those times where i'm just like god you guys are nerds <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was a band nerd, like through and through. In high school, I was in the marching band. I marched around with a sousaphone. You know, I hung out with the percussion section and, you know, we were kind of the misfits of the marching band. I mean, there is a stereotype of a person who, you know, goes into band and it's always, you know, I guess it was famous from like American Pie, but it's like, you know, soft-spoken individual, but kind of crazy when they when they party. Is that was that kind of how you are, Dan? Or is does the, I don't know does the shoe fit? <laughs> I don't know if I want to incriminate myself there, but uh, <laughs> I I don't know if I've ever been soft-spoken, but I, I have definitely you know really liked getting nerdy with you know any type of music. I mean, uh, for the longest time, and I don't know if it's still true anymore, but I held the highest number of perfect solo and ensemble uh, tuba performances in the state of Indiana. I had seven perfect scores. Oh, my God. And that lasted for a while. But, yeah, I mean, I got really into tuba. Are are there different archetypes between, like, say, like, uh, the brass players and, like, say, the woodwinds? Can you, like, point them out and, like, like, oh, different cliques? Oh, for sure. Rivalry? Rivalry? Group and community. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and there are people that, you know, kind of, blend in here blend in there but oh for sure like bre- like uh large brass and percussion hang out a lot i mean like this is my experience 20 years ago uh but for sure there's definitely clicks you know but it's all typically relative to where you sit you know within the band or orchestra right so the 
you know, large brass sits in the back right next to the percussion. We're kind of like out. We're not, we're not in the woodwind section down front. So and we don't play the melody. So we're all kind of in the back. Oh and yeah. Kind of goofing off. Hanging on the back. That's where it's at. I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you my orientation to uh, my one year in band. I was a trumpet player and absolutely hated it. I was no good. Absolutely terrible. Didn't practice. Nothing like that. And I was second to last chair. And the only reason why I was second to last chair was because the last chair had behavioral issues. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least you didn't have behavioral issues, Scott. That's right. Saving grace. Yeah. Saving grace. That's right. Uh, Incredible. Well, how about I introduce you really quick, Dan? Um, So beyond being a acclaimed seven-time award-winning Indiana tuba player. Perfect score. Uh, Perfect score. Yeah, exactly. Perfect score. Uh, Dan is also an award-winning HR, people analytics, and strategic workforce planning expert, as well as a former chief people officer as well, which I'm sure we'll dig into today. He's worked at uh, some Fortune 100 enterprises as well as some growing mid-sized companies. He's an adjunct professor at Vanderbilt's Owen and Peabody Graduate Schools, as well as the chair of NTC's Analytics Summit coming up in Nashville, which again, I'm sure we'll talk about. But thanks so much for joining us today, Dan, and and being a part of the podcast. Pleasure to be here, guys. Uh, I'm a huge supporter. uh, You know, I guess I'd say first time caller, uh, but I think I've listened to over 90%. There's only a few that I actually haven't listened to. So I'm just thrilled to be here. Obviously love talking about these topics. So thanks for having me. Any of the episodes you've been putting off for some reason that you didn't want to listen to? No, actually it's probably, it's, it's all the, there's probably a few old ones. I've, I've definitely, I think everyone since February, I've definitely listened to. I think there's just a few older ones that I, you know, you got to scroll through the iPod app to get down to the bottom <laughs> of them. But other than that, I, I, I listen to it every week for sure. Well, let's be honest, the early ones are painful to listen to. The audio quality is terrible. <laughs> Scott and I hadn't really found our stride yet, so you're not you're not missing out. Neither are our current I will listeners. Say, I will say the the last few months have been really, really good. So I hope I live up to that uh, you know, to that standard. So. Some say we haven't hit our stride yet, so I, I feel it's going to happen today. <laughs> This other podcast I listen to is literally called The Best One Yet, and they literally reference every – they do a daily podcast, and they literally say this is the best one yet every single time. So here, here we go. Maybe it's a T-boy. Well, on a related note to being the best one yet, you're a triplet. Are you the best one yet out of the three? Like, how does that work? I mean, obviously, depends on what your criteria is. Uh, I definitely am the most probably professionally nerdy one. Um, I have – Two brothers, right? Uh, same age, triplet. Uh, I have a taller one and a shorter one. Uh, we're very fraternal. Uh, some people can recognize that we look alike, but for the most part, if you saw us in a lineup, it'd be very difficult to kind of pick us out. Uh, my my shorter brothers, uh, he, him and his wife own a flower farm. Uh, he does customer experience. Um, uh, he's got a bunch of tattoos. My older brother's kind of like what you would call the Abercrombie jock. He's six foot two or three. I'm, I'm like five, 10, 11. Uh, so he's much taller, much stronger, was always into sports. Uh, he, he definitely did a lot better there. So we're very different. Where were you in birth order? I mean, obviously you're all born at the same rough time, but yeah. I mean, I would, if I were born first, I'd hold it over everybody. 
Oh no! So I was born first. Oh so I yeah. That. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, his leadership yeah, that's, qualities. That's a claim to fame. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I'd like to think that's where I started. <laughs> you know, the leadership aspects, right? Who who was it? A while back, somebody brought up the birth order stuff on the podcast. I, I don't honestly, I don't know very much about it. But do you do you guys subscribe to that? What what do you know about it? And and does it make a difference? You think? I think it does a little bit for sure. Um, we fit pretty well into, you know, the typical psychologies behind it. Uh, I de was definitely more kind of a, your type A uh, for the longest time, but both my brothers were actually good students too. Uh, just my brother, Nick, you know, the taller one was really good at sports and um, other brother Ben was kind of more creative and artsy. Um, so yeah, but we've all, you know, done well professionally uh, and are still like really close friends. So it's been fantastic to see that, but uh I've looked into psychology a couple of times. Actually, I've got to follow up. There's a twin study out of Louisville that actually includes us as triplets. And I've got to go interview that, I think, sometime this fall as a 20-year follow-up. So a triplet, a part of a twin study. That's confusing. Yeah, it's multiple birth thing, yeah. <laughs> I, I think there's some like really visceral stuff there. Not necessarily like of triplets or anything like that, but when the youngest child and there's a newborn come along and they, they become the middle child, I think that they, I think there's some visceral instincts that know that they are going to be overlooked like you you see this in some sort of videos and you know uh they, they tell a kid that they're going to have a little brother and they like kind of flip out there, there's something innate to the human condition where they know that their station life is not going to be the same oh absolutely we we haven't covered this on the pod but i'm actually a middle child i have i suffer from are a, you really yeah i have an insufferable case of middle childitis <laughs> so you know, i would never guess that well, I you know what? I would have pegged you for firstborn for sure. I don't know. I, you uh, got to fight for everything, right? Yeah, yeah, you have you haven't seen me off the podcast yet, Dan. We'll change that later this year. That's right, October. We'll change that. Okay, <laughs> I'm excited to see that. Well, why don't we go ahead and plug that really quick? Uh, that's one thing I'm pretty excited about, and I was happy to have you on the podcast. Was this uh, analytics summit coming up in Nashville? Uh, I, I'm going to be speaking. I know you're an organizer of it. And we're hosting yeah. a, a Nashville People Analytics and HR Technology Meetup, so that's pretty yeah. exciting. And we'll get to meet each other in person and all that good stuff. Yeah, and it's uh, downtown Nashville. Which have you been to Nashville before? Not in a long time. I haven't been. I went uh, a few times in college and graduate school, but I haven't been back since. It's a great town. Yeah, it's a yeah. booming, booming, thriving city now. It's it's crazy how far it's come along. So I did Vanderbilt undergrad there, you know, 20 years ago or so. And so now that we're back and living here since, uh, what is it, 10, 11, 12 years, uh, it has just continued to, to grow. So you'll be excited. It's, it's shocking for most people to see the downtown because they just don't typically associate Nashville with this kind of thriving downtown city area. And it, it really is truly. But, uh, you know, that's one of the things why the Analytics Summit works so well. We've got a ton of industry there that people kind of forget about. There's a lot of healthcare. Um, and if you're in healthcare, you, you probably know that Nashville is, you know, kind of one of the epicenters. Um, but outside of that, you know, we've got music, obviously we've got uh, automotive and then just a bunch of other suppliers. It's a fantastic place to live. Um, and so the analytics summit's great because we've got four or five universities that are close. So we've got lots of uh, doctors like you guys. Uh, we've got lots of uh, industry professionals and it's just kind of a new booming place and so i've been part of this group for about eight or nine years and chair it for a couple and so we'll probably get 
700, 800 people to come oh and talk gosh. about analytics. And it's, you know, it's, it's not a, you know, for-profit uh, community meetup, right? It's, it's uh, the National Technology Council is just for people doing IP data and analytics. Uh, so we get a lot of people that just, you know, present for free. They, they talk about what they're doing and it's just an amazing community of individuals. Um, so get excited. It should be a lot of fun. And we've got about 10 or 15% that's going to be people analytics uh, this year. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's a great ad. Scott, have you spent much time in Nashville? I went through Nashville uh, one time. I'm, I think I was going to Chicago, traveling from Louisiana to Chicago. Wonderful city. You got that was Broadway. It's, it's amazing. The music yep. scene there, all the pubs up and down and there's like a T intersection. Obviously you got the uh, uh, Titans, the Nashville Tennessee Titans right there. So, I mean, it's a big city. Uh, also, yeah. also like one of my, you know, like secret sort of bits is like, I try to sneak on to different football fields. So whenever I pass a D one stadium, I try to get in I got on the Vanderbilt football field to run around, check it out for a while. It's been several years. So hopefully the statute of limitations is uh, expired by now. I'm sure. That's actually pretty funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've, I've gotten on the Alabama. I just don't like that. Girl, you, you collect these pictures and post them somewhere? I don't post them. You know, you got to protect the innocence. But, yeah, I, <laughs> I got onto to uh, Alabama's field uh, all over Texas, essentially every D1 school yeah. in Texas. Uh, but this has nothing to do with the actual Nashville meetup at all. <laughs> it's not a Scott joke. No, that's fine. I'm actually curious. Dan, are you a, are you a Nashville country music fan? Yeah, I like country. Uh, I mean, it's not one of the you know, typical genres I search out for to you know go out on a Friday night. But believe me, having moved there you know years and years ago, I definitely got into it. I do like country, uh, but I also you know I also like I like classical. I like rap. I like uh, you know electronic music. So I kind of listen to a lot of it. And you know, but if we're downtown on you know a weeknight. For sure, I definitely want to hear some country. Oh man, can, can, can you uh, uh, play any rap songs on the tuba? <laughs> uh, I I think I did a cover of uh, one of Dr. Dre's 2001, uh, like a long time ago. Oh, but it's yeah. been it's been a little while since that. Uh, maybe I'll uh, I'll see if I can pull that together and I'll send you a video. <laughs> Instant street cred. Well done. Oh yeah. Sir. Oh yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, maybe at some point we'll actually talk about you know <laughs> people in yeah, that'd be great but well dan actually I, i'm curious it was something i thought about um leading up to this but we hadn't actually chatted about is you're you're kind of one of those engineer slash nbas yeah. that got into this space so we we talked to a lot of io psychologists and and the people that aren't our psychologists usually have some kind of like social science or maybe data science background but uh, your your background's pretty unique in this space. Why 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 did you get into people analytics in the first place? And then why move up the whole HR chain and become a P, uh, chief people officer? Um, and then we we can kind of get to your firm here in a little bit too. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, no, great question. It is a kind of a random story. As an engineer in college, I was really kind of into the automotive industry. You know, I like cars. I still do. Um, and I was pretty much going to become a mechanical engineer and look to be a product designer for you know the automotive industry. Um, but when I graduated in 2005, there weren't a ton of jobs there. So people were like, no, the next best thing for engineers is typically to go into IT uh, and or consulting. So I applied, got a job at Accenture and you know kind of took off uh, from there. So I arrive and they're like, all right, 
what's my first client? I thought it would be some sort of industrial client kind of in around the Chicago area. And they're like, no, no, you're going to go to a telecommunications client and you're going to do uh, an SAP e-recruiting implementation uh, of this massive, massive telecommunications client. That and sounds like, mm. absolutely miserable, by the way, but keep going. Yeah, <laughs> it, it did too. To be honest, and I don't say this very often, I can't believe I'll probably say this now, I had a little bit of a cry because I was like, oh man, this is not what I signed up for. I really wanted to do engineering. But as odd as it sounds, I got in there, I started doing the requirements gathering, I started working in the systems. We started noticing just like such a large gap and all the data that comes in, they were doing something like 3 million job applications a quarter and they were doing nothing with that data. They Damn. would just lose it. And as soon as they had another job, they'd just go back out and they would just never, they didn't have any talent pools. They didn't have anything pulled together in this massive company of all these resumes. And so we started working with the data and I just kind of got into it more and more. And the biggest thing that I found out that I really loved about it is you get to practice the science of you know engineering and IT and technology, but then there's this crazy chaos that people bring in, you know, to those, you know, to this equation, right? A ton of emotion, aspiration, motivation, all these things that just make that equation so much more complicated, but also insanely interesting. And to be honest, that's just kind of where it took off from there. I mean, like as a CPO, like I, I, I've been fascinated with this idea that, you know, there's all sorts of books on like what people should do, right? You know, you, you got to be prepared and like all this sort of stuff, but what, what are the biggest downfalls that you've seen from other folks that just like didn't make it or uh, what, where did they go wrong? I've always been kind of a more business focused individual, hence kind of like why I went back to get my MBA after consulting. But I, I love the intricacies of business and then how people play a big part of that. You know, everyone's favorite term is, you know, are people you know, our, our biggest, most yeah. valuable asset, but yeah. And it's a great punchline, but very few firms actually practice it. Yeah. It's know, like, if I never heard that again, <laughs> I'd be fine. You know, like, Oh, for sure. It's our just so greatest trite. aspect. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, you know, that's the typical Max Bloomberg, you know, line too. It's, I really do agree with him on that front. Like firms are willing to extend as much as they can up until the point where the shareholders or the owners are like, well, you know, we're kind of spending too much on people or we're kind of doing too much work here. So let's, let's, let's scale back. And so kind of to answer your point is I think there's a very real way of, you know, combining this where the business needs to be successful, but you also need to provide people with, you know, the, the right tools, the right training, you know, the right environment, the right culture. Like there are all these things that have to click for a firm to be successful. And having the background in analytics and being able to kind of talk about that, also, you know, having the skill set of like a human resources business partner, HRBP, combining all that together with the business, you know, you've got to be able to, to work all those angles at any point within the day to prioritize what needs to get done. And sometimes that's, you know, working with, you know, uh, a group that has an issue with their manager. Sometimes that means, you know, looking at the dashboards to make sure that, you know, some of the metrics are looking good for the board meeting. And then other times you're like, okay, the business is doing well here. It's not doing well here. I see their numbers. I see our numbers. How do we kind of mix all that together? And so, I mean, I found it to be completely rewarding. I, if I were to pick one that I didn't really love, it'd probably be the HRBP aspect of it. But 
yeah, yeah. that's that's just me. Were you, are you a are you a Max Blumberg fan? Yeah, for sure. I think he's got a lot of good stuff to say. Um, you know, are, are you? I, you are. Yeah, you both are. I, oh, yeah. I do have I do have a mea culpa of sorts. I, I a few episodes ago, I called him a jackass. He is a friend. Yeah. I think some people interpreted that the wrong way. Max, if you're out there listening, you know I love you, and I don't think you're a jackass. I think you're great, so thanks. <laughs> I didn't think it that way. I thought it was a term of endearment. I mean, I'd, I love if you called me a jackass, so. Yeah, but he's a friend. He's a good guy. Yeah. Well, I, I want to I take it back, though, here, because uh, I, I love the perspective of being a chief people officer. Sometimes used to be called a CHRO, but they took out a letter, which I think is great. Not Too many letters is, yeah. you know. But uh, you came from a people analytics background into that position. And I think a few times we've talked about on here and a few articles I've written and many other people have talked about this as well is like perhaps the future of the people analytics leader would be to move into that chief people officer role. But we haven't seen a lot of that happening. You're one of the few out there that I've noticed, at least, that has made that kind of transition. Can you tell us about that? Did people analytics equip you to do the job effectively? Did it, what did it not equip you to do effectively? And, and maybe even like the things like the NBA and the engineering background as well. Like talk to us about that. For me in this day and age, especially kind of starting out in the kind of the HR technology and systems background, there's no substitute for understanding technology, especially these days. Mm -hmm. And HR was one of the ones that was by far, the furthest behind everything else, right? FP&A has been around a while. And, you know, even some of the marketing analytics has been around, you know, since after Don Draper died, right? So HR is by far one of the ones that is just kind of still coming up. And I, I say that because I've been in this space for what, almost 20 years. And we've been saying that exact same thing, like <laughs> HR analytics yeah. or people analytics, it's, you know, we're, <clears throat> we're right there on the cusp. And I think we still are out there on the cusp because, you know, I probably like you guys do, I still have to explain some of what I do to my friends. And they're like, hmm, really? I, I didn't know that. Um, somewhat defeating, but I usually get past it pretty quickly. But that helps, that background in technology and analytics and business helps you to be able to speak clearly, articulately with your other C-suite peers. So one of the things we talked about, you know, before was, when you're competing for budget, when you're competing for, you know, the thriving business that you want to grow, right? You've got to be able to speak about operations. You've got to be able to speak about IT and finance and strategy. And if you come to the table lacking an understanding of the other aspects of the business, then you, you're already, you know, behind because you can't speak to why something that you want to do, a strategic initiative would be as important or more important than a new IT system or a new supply chain or you know, something else in the strategy. So you've got to be able to compete at that level and they've got to take, your other peers have to take you seriously and you've got to convince them. So having that analytics background, being able to have a truth, a data set, uh, a point of view on all that gets you into the conversation a lot more than if you were just to come with uh, an HR background. Now, not to say, there are plenty of very brilliant chief people officers that I've worked with and have known that, that learn that and bring that without having kind of an analytics background. But I just think for kind of going forward, the, the 
chief people officers of the future will certainly have a, a heavy understanding of analytics. How, how does this play out like in a boardroom? Like obviously you're, you're a super smart guy, you're, you're technologically uh, adept, all this sort of stuff, but like, is there a stigma against HR in, in that room that you have to overcome and like prove yourself is because things are not just like seen as like HR initiatives or, you know, they're just HR once again, meddling in things that they don't understand. Yeah. Again, in my point, to my experience, especially when you enter a new organization or if you've, you know, you've risen to that level and now you're, you know, in a, in a different room, if you're speaking to the chief operating officer, you've got to be able to know what they're doing, yeah. what, what aspects of their strategy match yours, what aspects of their strategy don't match, uh, and then be able to, you know, have a, you know, what are called the pros and cons of why, at least an opinion of why what they're doing will ha- uh, potentially have the business do better or not. Mm-hmm. Same thing with finance. You've got to understand what they're doing, where they're allocating budget, where they're, what their initiatives are in order to, you know, again, fight for that budget to help fund some of the initiatives you're, you're working on. I mean, uh, it's, you know, well-known, my first kind of people and a large people analytics role uh, growing the team itself was at Bridgestone Americas, which, you know, 70,000 people, you know, across, you know, North and South America. And I started with an Excel spreadsheet and, you know, under the talent acquisition VP to start its people analytics group in 2015. And so I had to grow it, you know, by myself, you know, big borrow and steal budget, work with IT, work with the different partners and explain and educate how you kind of, how and why we need to focus on getting these numbers, working them into the strategy, working them into the operations so that the business can do better. And so coming to the table at those points is just huge. I, I'd love to hear both of you like kind of compare notes. Like I'm, I'm someone that doesn't deal with the budget, this sort of stuff. But I, I know, Cole, you, you've uh, dealt with this in the past. Like what would you say to like a, uh, you know, first line or second line manager that needs budget? You know, obviously not all of our audiences, you know, CPOs, this sort of stuff, but a lot of them are like lower middle management. How do they fight for budget? It's like a totally different realm. Yeah. From my experience, very unsuccessfully. (laughs) 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 No, I think what it comes down to is like there's, and I'd love to get your perspective on this too, Dan. There's like a, um, business need aspect to getting budget and then there's like a political aspect to getting budget mm-hmm. and and then there's kind of the business as usual aspect like usually it's pretty easy if you had budget last year to get the same budget for next year sure. right yeah. and so there's a there's a um a, an, an aspect of inertia to it as well but if you're looking for additional budget or if if times are like they are right now where budget is being cut that is where the, the ability to build a business case and the ability to be very politically savvy is, is of, of paramount. And most middle managers aren't very good at it or they don't mm-hmm. even know what game they're playing. It's not just that they're playing again. They don't even know that the game is being played. And that, that's, the, the, that's the most challenging part. What, what would you say, Dan? Oh, you're spot on there. Uh, and I, you know, as I was thinking about kind of preparing for this, one of the things I came across was one of my first presentations uh, for uh, a new HR analytics system. You know, we had, I'd built enough in Excel and then I transferred it to Tableau and we were beginning to scale it, but it just got too cumbersome to, 
to manage. So, you know, we, I went to the, uh, the HR kind of budget committee was talking about this and I came in with a, God, I think it was like a 1700% ROI. And they just looked at me like, are you, you, you can't come in here with that. Like that's, that's the most ridiculous <laughs> ROI. That's not really an ROI. And uh, I finally learned that, you know, coming with the ROI versus coming with a break even was a better thing because listen, it's like, listen, we make this money and we can make it back in, you know, in like eight months. Uh, and then if we keep it for three years, you know, this is kind of what we earned back. And so there's, there's all that aspects. And while that did work a little bit, what I really learned after that is the bartering aspects of the political aspects. So you have to know what your other peers are asking for and where your resources align, where your incentives align, where your aspirations and goals align, because you're going to need the group of individuals you know, to support you. And so if they're trying to do X, you're trying to do Y, you've got to find that middle ground in there. It's like, listen, if we do this now or we do this later, like let's try to see where we have some synergies and, and move together. Uh, yeah. That's the only way I think, at least at a, at a big firm, it, that's really going to happen. Or a really important and uh, valuable uh, executive sponsor who might even be willing to pay for it from another business unit. Like those, yeah. those things can be quite... That's another good one. Uh, I mean, I practice very much the, uh, within Bridgetown, at least when I was doing this, there was like seven different silos and I went to one silo and I paid all the attention to him, but he was one of the guys that was really, you know, trying to run some new progressive business lines and, and, and make an impact. And so I partnered with him. And as soon as he told everyone else that he had all these numbers, everyone else jumped on board, but he was definitely more of an influencer. Absolutely. Well, I want to change gears here real quick, Dan. I think you have some secret discussion topics for us today. Did I hear that correctly? <laughs> yeah, I'd, uh, I prepared a couple depending on how much time we have. Well, you want to hit uh, us with one? You can't use the word secret and not get me excited. Yeah. All right. So the first one, and this came up uh, a little while ago. I'm a big Formula One fan. So I'm not, I, I, like, I do love football um, and I do love kind of the other sports, but I really love football. And that's kind of based on my, I, we talked about this before, engineering background and just how amazing those cars are. So I was watching the Grand Prix this last weekend and, you know, Max Verstappen is one of these guys that has this incredible win streak with Red Bull. And then the very like next day or two days later, uh, Moneyball came on and I was talking, you know, about Billy Bean and the athletics and like their, you know, their 20 win streak. Uh, and I was thinking a lot about that. I was like, man, at some point, Hollywood's going to pick up on what a cool story people analytics is and you know, how amazing directionally correct, you know, contributed to that line. So my thought was, you know, Billy Bean got uh, Brad Pitt. And my question to you guys is, I have sourced using your pictures, what the internet says is the closest actor oh, to this is great. Oh, Jesus. And I want to know if you if you had a Hollywood actor play your part, who would who would you want it to be? You gotta go first, Scott. Sorry. Well I mean it's like who would you want it to be or like who would it be? You know Well no you guys say who you want and then I'll tell you who the what the internet said. Oh man. I'm not great with actor names. Uh of course you, you want like like Zach Efron. I'll, I'll go Zach Efron. Yeah. 
Yeah, they got to be more attractive. Yeah, yeah, well, well, thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely going with like The Rock would be who I would want it to be. And then realistically, it would probably be with that. I don't know the actor's name, but the tall, skinny guy, Jared from Silicon Valley. That's probably who it really is. Oh, <laughs> well, you you don't want you don't want like I don't know who Dan's about to like spring on us, but you don't want like uh, Dan DeVito or uh, oh god, yeah, Steve Buscemi. Be like, oh, you remind me of Steve Buscemi. He's like, no, that's not good. Yeah. So for Cole, the internet said, and I, I only picked the ones that I thought made the most sense. Uh, is either uh, Will Wheaton. And Scott would like this one because that's that's very much more Star Trek. Will we? Okay, I could kind of see like uh, Will Reaton uh, rocks the mustache and beard, very cool. Right. Like, yeah, okay. And then it dropped in Chuck Liddell. Oh shit! I know. I don't even know who Will Wheaton is, but I know who Chuck Liddell is. That is a bad man. Bad, bad man. Yeah, but then I thought, you know, I thought actually Russell Crowe would actually be yeah. a, a really good one for you, I could but see that. definitely more Gladiator era. Not not so much now. Well, and yeah, well, Russell Crowe's gotten fat now, so I think I could I could yeah. definitely pull <laughs> off that now. And then and then for for Scott, uh, we've got Danny Masterson, you know, from the '70s show, uh, and or uh, Chris Pine. And I, I figured you'd like that because that's also a very good link to Star Trek. Yeah, I'll rock the Chris Pine. I don't know about the Masterson. He's got a checkered past there. And that don't want to really associate. You know, here's the worst thing, because I definitely got the worst and maybe the funniest one. So you guys all know Office Space. Uh, well, Peter Gibbons, the character is, is Ron Livingston, and that's who I got. Ron Livingston. That was, that was the best one. I've always wanted George Clooney just because of the head. Yeah, you know, the main character in Office Space. If you, went, if you had a beard you could, or a five o'clock shadow, you could be George Clooney in a heartbeat. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I like to think we have similar names. Yeah, a little Anderson so. Cooper in you. I mean, yeah, there is some of that. Yeah, sure. Good looking guy. Yeah. So that that was that, that was one of my secret sections. I have another one. And well, I, I want to come back to something before you move on. You really think they would make a movie about people analytics? And if they did, directionally correct would play any part of that? <laughs> like that seems absurd. Why not? You can't tell the story without directionally correct. I think that's what Dan's saying. You... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe it's an indie film. It might not be, you know, kind of <laughs> not a blockbuster, but, you know. not a summer blockbuster. Yeah, it could be a Cannes film, film festival, uh, film festival winner. Yeah, we're going to Sundance, baby. This is where it's, it's happening. It's, it's either Barbie, Oppenheimer, or Directly Correct. Those are the three options. <laughs> <laughs> what a weird, weird conversation this has turned into. <laughs> yeah, we can get back on track. Well, I, I'm loving this, Dan. What, here, please hit us with another uh, one of these uh, topics. This is great. Well, one of the things you guys you know, talked about was uh, the uh, the anti-bucket list. Let, let, let's do it. Let's do it, because I got a list, too. I got a list, too, but I want to hear Dan's. My personal one, by far, is no more trampolines or roller coasters. I can't ha- I, I can't take it anymore, whatever the inner ear sinus thing. That's, that's just not going to happen. Uh, the, the other thing very relevant to work is I don't think I'm ever going to build a people analytics dashboard or system, you know, from scratch ever again. I've done it. Yo, I've done it a few times. Yo, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much done there. 
I made a list too, Dan, and like roller coasters was on there. Not not explicitly, like so, like maybe like a Disney World, but definitely not one of these like carnivals that are in a uh, parking lot. Ne- never again, you know. These sort of like carnies come by. Uh, I got Fly Spirit Airlines burned. Never gonna do it again. <laughs> Skimp on a crappy hotel unless you can help it. Never gonna do that again. I'm never Fair, ne- yep. never gonna go to the club again. I was dragged to the club when I was in college and should have learned way earlier that not my scene uh never gonna take a some of these are like naturally never gonna take a college test again for credit or listen to a music on a cassette and check this out never gonna make a psyop poster again i don't believe it's a lot a lot of effort a lot of never never again talk about a bad value of effort versus you know reward yeah but i think uh the one I, I came up, I actually completely forgot that we were talking about this, but I did get some blood drawn earlier today. Ooh, ooh. Any kind of blood. I have passed out, I think, four times in my life from some type of either giving blood or getting blood drawn or giving plasma or whatever. And uh, I never want to do that again if I don't have to. And I, the other thing is, Scott, your point about going to a club <laughs> oh, I totally feel you on that. I think we've talked about before off the podcast. Like, I have this yeah. life philosophy: if you're if you're funnier than you are good looking, don't go to loud clubs, right? <laughs> it's just not a it's not a good place for you to be. That's actually not a bad rule. That's not a bad rule. They're dark. There's nowhere to sit. They're loud. I mean, like distinctly remember, like standing by like the fucking door, and like people are like, "Aren't you having fun?" Like, no. <laughs> ready to go home this sucks. yeah and they, they don't get very good until really late at night and i i don't i don't really stay up late anymore here's here's one more uh trust that thai food is not too spicy never gonna never gonna take this challenge again yeah i feel well, like I, there's a story behind that one <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i feel like there's more there there's no aftermath story if that's what you're getting at but like order some thai food and be like all right yeah it's gonna be fine no yeah, no. it sounds like a, a potential blowout's about to occur. <laughs> All right, well, let's do some nerdery. The nerdery. Let's do some nerdery. Where do you want to begin, bud? I can go first. Let me uh, share my screen real quick as I tee this up. The first uh, topic we have today, I actually don't have a lot to say about it. I was just happy. Um but Patrick Coolin, who uh, I think recently left, but he's been at ABN AMRO for a, quite a while, uh, a really uh, prominent thought leader in people analytics, recently got, I believe, his first journal article published in Human Resource Management Review with, with a few other authors. And it was called Understanding the Adoption and Institutionalization of Workforce Analytics, a S- Systematic Literature Review and Research Agenda. And what he goes through here, I, I won't say this is incredibly scientific because it's, again, primarily a review of the literature. But what, what he goes through here is what is the process by which workforce analytics, which I think you could synonymously call with people analytics, sure. is institutionalized and adopted by different organizations. And I think this is probably a pretty good kind of history lesson of sorts as well as they give some results based on what they find about ways in which you can increase the adoption and what things might be holding it back. 
I'd suggest we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to the article in the show notes, but I, I think it's really good reading for folks out there that are thinking about this from a research-based lens rather than just kind of winging it. But how, how did you all react to this article? I'm interested in Dan's perspective. Yeah. For me, there's, and I've seen so many different types of, you know, organizations, large, small, you know, different industries, the number of pain points that you can relieve uh, from the you know, organization is, is ultimately where you drive kind of the, the most value. So as long as people analytics has the ability to help with that and you can consistently deliver, and you guys have talked about this a ton on your show, there's no substitute for being able to drive value by relieving pain points or, you know, looking at increasing revenue or decreasing costs. As long as you kind of do that, the instant, you know, institutionalization of people analytics, you know, will ultimately work as long as people are open to, you know, including this type of analysis in, you know, their, their day-to-day workings and projects. Other than that, like I, like I said, like some organizations just aren't there yet. They, they tend to focus on other things. Uh, but if people play a large part of it, you're, you're just going to have to do it if you're going to survive going forward. I think that's right. And uh, it's, it's been my experience that like some companies are just ahead, some are behind. Everyone's sort of in the middle. But I mean, like there to Dan, your point, like there seems to be like some sort of like uh, obstruction to some companies getting ahead. But like, what what is that? Why why would that be the case? Is it industry? Is it desire? I don't know. Why, why would you not engage in sort of people analytics process? It's a rhetorical question, clearly. Yeah, I think um, I don't know if I have necessarily a response to the rhetorical question, but I think it's a good observation for sure. I mean, the way the way I'm thinking about this type of thing is uh, we people analytics as a field are in a process of maturation. And so there was a period of time for a while where you could just kind of throw spaghetti against the wall and see what sticks, what's going to work. How can we copy marketing? How can we copy, you know, these other functions? But as we mature, we need to get to a point where we actually have a scientific grounding for the way we operate, why we do what we do, what is what is important, what's making an impact. And I think what's happening is some of the folks that have been in this field a while are starting to push us that direction. And I think mm. it's good for the maturation of our field that we are going that direction. I think it helps quite a bit. 100%. I tend to always try to start with kind of the, what I would consider the, the most valuable. And then, you know, for me, Structuring talent acquisition, making sure the talent acquisition operations are smooth. Uh, that's a huge first win. And then the second biggest one is performance. So performance management. I know, Cole, you've written some great stuff on this. Certainly with you, I'm more of a quarterly kind of update person. doesn't have to be something uh, crazy formal, but you do have to be able to talk about it. And I think the third part of that is, you know, comes in with a, the learning side of it is just teaching managers. Those are usually the first three things I looked at in, in any kind of client organization that I go to. I want to understand how well those are all working. You need to get talent in the door. You need to be able to measure performance. And then you need to be able to ha- you have a high degree of confidence that your managers have the abilities and the, and the training you know, to be able to manage people. Are those typically the uh, areas of deficiency? I mean, like those sound like foundational aspects you're referring to. Like, if you can get those three things right, then like then you can like really build a mature people next function. But are those also the areas that p- companies struggle with largely? Oh, absolutely. I mean, TA, you know, talent acquisition, workforce planning, headcount is you know those are some of the biggest ones to begin with. I mean, the firms that actually have it right, I've seen a lot of them start moving to 
some of these uh, skill, you know, the skill-based organization, which I love, and I, I know it's going to take us a little while longer to get that correct because it, it is such kind of a complex, you know, validation. Because to understand does someone have a skill, can you validate it, you know, in more than one way? Totally. And then, yeah, you know, the other thing I always talk about is even if they have a skill set, do they actually want to use that skill set? Because I mean, I used to be really good at <laughs> right. really good at Excel. But I don't really want to do any work with Excel anymore. Well, I, I got I actually got a point about this skill-based stuff. We, I was leading a session earlier this week talking about uh, learning and development, which has a strong relationship to skill building. Yeah. And uh, this question came up about what what is actually like effective training. What is it usually like? What are the telltale? Um, signs of effective training versus trainings that are often ineffective. And the point came up was like training that is geared towards executing a business's operating model, right? So this is how we operate. You don't know how to operate yet. We are going to equip you with the things you need to know, the exact behaviors you need to do to operate the way the business operates. And that ends up being more effective oftentimes than skill building based training. And so I wonder if like uh, this big push towards skill based organizations would be better served or maybe augmented by focusing more on finding the moving pieces in an organization that help it execute its operating model better. Um, And I'm curious if you have thoughts about that, Dan. Joke on here a lot about, you know, kind of wanting to have you know, certain debates, but I, I'm a hundred percent with you. I'm a huge process guy, obviously with my engineering background, I want, you know, I want things to run like as efficient as trains. Right. And so knowing that any kind of given training, I think is probably 80% that with 20% experience, because you do want people to walk away and be like, Oh, that was fun. Like, I, you know, like I do that again. I feel like I learned something. I feel like I had a good time. You know, I got some, you know, I got some lunch, uh, you know, and then they're recommending it kind of to other people. If they can walk away with those two aspects, you know, a, a, a greater effectiveness or efficiency based on kind of the process of an operating model, a hundred percent. I just, I just think that's the the way. And I find a lot of utility in that. I find a lot of utility in just being efficient with my day to day. And so, whenever I hear stuff like that, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm on board. I think what both of you are like kind of dancing around to is the aspect of motivation. Like you can teach someone a skill. But if they're not willing to apply it, then it's kind of irrelevant. Or like if you enjoyed your training sort of uh, experience, that's really good. Like we, we want these sort of things to be enjoyable and employees to do it. But I mean, if, if I'm hiring somebody, I would rather have someone that would run through a fucking brick wall than someone that had the skill, but, you know, just kind of refused. This is a bump on the log, right? So, I mean, like it's, it's a different sort of animal, especially as we become more uh, abstract in our work. Uh, technically, technologically complex motivation and like just desire to engage in these sort of like uh, learning activities, highly critical, highly critical, and then apply them. Of course, I mean you got to got to get as much discretionary effort as you can. Yeah, I I have been known to say you you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. But some horses you can't get them to stop drinking either. And so you're, you're looking for those thirsty horses out there. Thirsty horses. Thirsty horse. I like that. That's that. That's got a nice. That's got a nice thought to it. Very Texas too. Uh, y'all want to bounce into a different topic here? 
Yeah, what is it? Uh, okay, so this article is called uh, "Feeling Negative or Positive About Fresh Blood." So we've all been, uh, part, we've all joined new teams, uh, you know, outside hires, this sort of stuff. Uh, and obviously, it can be awkward. And there's substantial amount of research on socializing newcomers, this sort of stuff. And actually, you know, cool. I don't think we've ever really talked about that. We can pot that up for another uh, pod. Uh, but what about those that are already existing teammates? What do they have to say? So the authors authors argue that uh, when a newcomer joins a team full of veterans, uh, this triggers a multiple multiplex uh, affective reactions, which uh, affects team functioning. The authors propose that stronger negative reactions occur when a newcomer uh, differs in their um, relational ca- uh, characteristics, such as likability more than their task characteristics. So their educational background, this sort of stuff. And they back it up with uh, lab and field studies, but uh, really kind of interesting research. We don't really talk about the existing teammates and when a newcomer comes to the team, we typically talk about uh, how to uh, ingratiate a newcomer to the team. Really kind of interesting research. Yeah, there's definitely two sides to this. And I think the research is looking more at one half of the equation However, one thing, and I don't know if the article really gets into this, but here's a quote that will drive any veteran crazy. Well, at my last company, we used to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Why, why don't we do it this way at this company, right? Um, I think that's a really great way of getting the veterans to have negative affective reactions to the newcomers on the team. Right, and in and, and that same line of thinking, like – why did you or yeah you they walk in like well why did you do it this way or why did you choose this or something it's just like you know what's the old term like you know calling calling someone's baby ugly like (laughs) you got to be careful those those new ties to teams are exceptionally valuable like obviously why why would you hire externally because you don't have that sort of information within your own system right that's that's why you bring in these folks are uh, uh, their experience and, you know, kind of fresh sort of perspectives, this sort of stuff. But yeah, I mean, you can ruffle a lot of feathers when you're like, well, you know, we did it this way. And so we should start switching up all the systems, despite the fact that these people have immense uh, organizational history knowledge and, you know, where all the bodies are buried and why it didn't work here and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I always think of that quote from that movie, Dodgeball. Here at Globo, Jim, we're better than you, and we know it. And that's how it kind of feels sometimes when the, the new person comes in. We're like, I was at a better company than you, so obviously we know how to do things better. And, you know, I as a person who's been a new person quite a few times in my career, it is a, it is a, a fine line that you have to walk being a newcomer in an organization of balancing yeah. between learning and contributing right Right. and i think that's really kind of what the article is getting at is like how can you maximize the amount of contributions of new blood in an organization while minimizing uh or or, or, while also maximizing the learning that goes on at the same time and that that can be a tough balance for sure i feel like i've read somewhere where if you enter into a new team whether it's you know at work or uh, anywhere really you want to ask more questions than answer questions. And I think that's a kind of a good way of kind of just a simple, good way of approaching it. And so instead of 
saying, you know, oh, why did you do this? You know, you, you could ask, you know, maybe a little nicer on that way, but, mm-hmm. you know, instead of asking, you know, kind of pointed questions, you know, just be a curious individual uh, instead of offering up your opinion too soon. I, I, th- I think that's, uh, I think Rob Cross talks about this, like onboarding, meet as many people as you can, ask a lot of questions, try to understand the business, understand your role and who you're going to be talking to. Absolutely. There, there's also an element of like the veterans, th- th- there's a, uh, it's incumbent upon them to welcome a newcomer too. Like I've been oh, for sure. essentially hazed by people in a new team. It's like, what the fuck are y'all doing? Like, why, why are y'all like so rude? Why would you hire me? You're going to be like this. I mean, I have seen this multiple times. Like we, we worked, you know, several companies and clients really hard about onboarding, uh, you know, finding an early mentor, finding kind of those extroverted individuals that are really happy to meet new people and that, you know, have a good network and can kind of come on like, I just relate it back to kind of playing golf. Like, you know, if you have a regular foursome, someone can't make it, you want, you want to add someone in, right? The person that brings in the, that, that fourth new person is like, oh, hey, I've, I've known this person a bunch before. Like, they're, they're great. We're going to have a fantastic time today. Here's their background. Like, you know, kind of join on in, right? That's the type of introduction you want. You don't want to just, you know, it, What's the scariest thing? It's like if you're a threesome and you get tagged with a rando with golfer and you're like that you've just never played with before. Oh my gosh, there's just a ton of anxiety there. Uh, but no one's introduced us, so it's tough to really know what you're getting. Matthew Jackson talks about this quite a bit in network analysis parlance. Is like uh, the odds that a couple will get together that didn't know each other uh, through a mutual friend very low, uh, just because like you need someone to vouch for you essentially. Yeah, we, we talked about this in an article Shuba Gopal and I wrote a while back about the relationship between ONA, especially in onboarding, in inclusion but belongingness, right? And why this has become a hot topic recently is because to use your example of the the foursome on the golf course, there like I see like three different scenarios of the same thing happening. There's the scenario that you described, Dan, where the person kind of vouches for them, brings them in, and they probably feel that belongingness right away. There's another one where the person invites them and but no doesn't vouch for them, right? And so they still know one person, but the other two people didn't necessarily sign up for this. Right. And then there's the right. scenario where a person gets placed in the foursome that knows no one. Right. And, and all of those have different impacts on somebody's ability to feel like they belong in the group. Somebody's got to extend the olive branch. Right. Somebody's got to be the one that says, hey, we're cool with you here because we're human beings. We're just glorified apes. You know, we, we grew up, we got big frontal lobes, and that's what happened. And so we've still got to you know, got to think about these things. A hundred percent. And that, you know, those social norms and behaviors, you know, we go back to it, like kind of need to be trained. You know, a lot of people kind of forget or they haven't had as much training in that, or they're just not as socially aware of certain situations. Um, there's no substitute for, again, kind of having a playbook on this kind of stuff. And I mean, I wrote an article not too long ago about onboarding. And one of the biggest things was finding that mentor, you know, getting to know people uh, and ensuring that, you know, there is a level of, you know, introduction and, you know, I'll call it a back, lack of a better word, assimilation into the, into the group. But that, you know, that needs to start with, 
you know, kind of a, a networking individual to get you there. Uh, and I love ONA for this. I, I really wish we more companies would use that more on, on this aspect. And this is where, like, I'm not real hip on the EI literature, but I mean, like, this is, there, there's a shocking lack of people's ability to engage in these sort of behaviors. Like, yes, there's someone new. You should show empathy towards them and ingratiate them into the group, especially if you're going to be working with them repeatedly for years. Maybe you should uh, put everything off to the right step. Uh, Dan, how about we circle back to the confusion matrix? The confusion matrix. Okay, so I'll give, you, I'll give you two options here as we round things out. Okay. You want to talk about public speaking or do you want to talk about toast at weddings? Oh, public speaking. Public speaking. Okay. So I saw an article, and I think we've all kind of seen this, that uh, people are more fearful of public speaking than death, right? It ranks as the number one fear of 75% of Americans. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're all in positions where we've got to publicly speak every so often. How do you approach it? Do you get fearful? Oh, I got nervous before this, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes before. It's like, and I, you know, I've known you guys and I mean, I, I listen to you guys every week and I still got nervous. Uh, no, I think, but you know, getting nervous is fine. Like, as long as you find your stride there afterwards, yeah. I'm always nervous whenever I public speak. Um, I'm actually most comfortable. What I would say is like, if we went to a dinner, a table of 10 or less, I could know one other person, give me a topic and I'm extremely good at 10 or less people in a, in a closed off room. But as soon as it, that room opens up and I'm speaking and there's no two-way uh, conversation, yeah. that's, I mean, my brain does freeze. Like I have to have perfect notes about what I want to talk about in front of a group. I'll have to practice presentations two, three, four, five times all the way through. Like I just, my words just stop when there's no two-way conversation. I just need that feedback, I guess. I, I love this so much. I love it when people can like be real and talk about, you know, common fears. Cause like, you know, there's a lot of people that say like, Oh no, I, I never get nervous. I just rock it. No big deal. Same way. Same way, Dan, I essentially memorize presentations, you know, run through it several times. Cause I'll lock up too. I hate like trying to remember little details. Yeah. Actually, you know what one of the, my biggest fears on, on, coming on this podcast was simply that you guys have a far better, incredible vocabulary than I do. And hearing how some of you, you know, in some of your shows, some of your guests, even you guys articulate your points, I was just like, I don't even know if I could have come up with that sentence if I was writing it, let alone off the cuff, you know, on a podcast. I think that Cole, so. Cole speaks gooder, gooder than I do, typically. <laughs> I don't even know what you guys are talking about. Like, what really? Is, well, what was the biggest? What's the biggest crowd you've ever presented to, Cole? Like publicly? Uh, probably maybe over a thousand. I don't know. That's pretty solid. That's pretty solid. I'm like three, three, four hundred. I've done quite a few in my. So I, I kind of come at this from a different perspective than you guys. Um, I don't think I have, I have fears of public speaking, but I don't think I have the same fears that most people have. Like I never felt like I was going to die or something like that. A thing I learned in adulthood that really was like my go-to move between whether or not this is going to go well or completely unravel, which has happened before, yeah. is like I always try to say something slightly funny in the beginning. And if I get a few laughs, and this is kind of related to the belonging point, 
Um, if I get a few laughs, I feel like I belong and then we're good. Oh, yeah. We're like, I feel included. We're all in a group yeah. together. And then I can talk to them like other human beings. If I get no laughs, we're in trouble. Like this is about to be the worst thing that ever happened. I think you're right though. Like getting those first few words out is the critical aspect, right? Just what I think, I think this actually might be related to the middle child point from earlier. When you're a middle hmm. child, you're always acting out anyway. So you're always getting a bunch of wanted, but often unwanted attention. And so I was always used to kind of being in the limelight of sorts. Um, and so I, I just never really felt the same, I think, pressures that other people feel about being singled out. Because I think that's really what it is, is you feel singled out in a crowd and that just doesn't feel good sometimes. And like when you're used to that, when you've had that kind of beaten into you, <laughs> you know, it's 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 a. Uh, it's something that I don't know. I, I just think I, I come at this from a, a different perspective than a lot of people. That makes a lot of sense. Cole's a robot. He's a he's a machine, turning out them presentations. I don't even know what I would do in front of a room of a thousand people. That would just yeah. I, I guess I'd have to come up with some, a joke. But yeah, I, I don't know what's worse. Like <laughs> I think I might rather die if I said a joke and then that bombed, and then yeah, I I don't think I could go for it. I think I just. The, the hardest thing about the biggest rooms is if you have an echo, like if there's a, oh, a yeah, system the and you can hear your voice yeah. back, that that makes it very, very challenging. But if there's no echo, I could speak to 10,000 people. It'd be no big deal. As long as I got a few laughs at the beginning. I, I find that like over like 10 people doesn't really matter. Like once you get past a certain number, it's just more people in there. You could, you could add, you know, 10, 20, it doesn't really matter. But I, I will say that after I get done with the presentation and it goes very well, or, you know, public speaking engagement, feel like Superman. Feel like you're on top of the world. Feels so good. Oh, yeah. It's like adrenaline going through oh, your body. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, or feeling like in, you're in the flow, like chicks on my high, like in the moment. We have one more. Uh, we have a little bit more time for uh, a section than I came up with for you guys. Oh, geez. I should think so. Let's do this. All right, so I'm, I'm calling this one the manager maze. And this solely came through to me because obviously anytime before I was a uh, chief people officer, I really didn't deal very often with uh, <clears throat> employee relations cases. Uh, but then as chief people officer of 400 person company, like I had to start dealing with some of these and they were very real. And so I, I came up with two scenarios and I wanted to see what you guys would do. The first one is how would you handle uh, coming across a, a very inappropriate social media uh, post from uh, from a manager. So uh, individual contributor posted it, a uh, manager found it, and they come to you and they're like, you know, what should we do? doesn't matter, you know, the style or type of inappropriateness, but it's inappropriate. What do you, you know, what's your first thought? Well, see, this is where you're you're kind of coming at this from the HR person's hat. And this is why I never really felt like I'm an HR person because like, this is the kind of stuff I like exhaust me to my core. Yeah. Like I'm yeah. just like, Oh my God, do we really have to talk about it? So like, I guess I would bucket it in two camps is like, did the post go viral and now it's affecting the whole company <laughs> or something? Yeah. And we do yeah, have to yes, like, do we have to deal That's with exactly it? That's exactly what happened. Or if, or if it's just like a little private thing, I'm just going to act like nothing ever happened because like I, people's personal lives should be personal. And I know that's not a reality anymore nowadays, but I just, this kind of stuff just makes me die on the inside a little bit. Yeah. It's the tough stuff. 
and for sure it's one of those things that you know i've come across you know a couple of these and i would literally i'd be like all right i know what i think i should do but let me just google this first and you know this was maybe before you know chat gbt i couldn't ask couldn't ask it uh <laughs> i mean but, you you may or may not know this dan but like uh just to kind of we talked about this on some earlier episodes maybe but like i'm not even on other than linkedin i'm not even on social media anymore and it's kind of for this reason it's like i just can't deal with all the people's bullshit you know like oh yeah all no, the time. I, I'm, I'm not on twitter i'm not on I, I, i'm solely on linkedin and then you know the instagram for golf tips <laughs> nice well, and it's kind of like you know one person's you know uh terrorist is another person's freedom fighter sure. it's like a lot of times like one person's controversial so social media post is another person's like freedom of speech you know and like i you know i just i i try to stay out of a lot of this crap it's just not fun not at all but that's that's one of the crazy parts about kind of the the, the chief people officer role is that Yes, these come across your desk with no warning. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it was can be intense some days. You've officially convinced me to never be a chief people officer. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. I mean, it's not bad. I mean, you have a team of people that can help uh, make the make the best choice. And a lot of times, yeah, you try to bring some data into it just because, again, if it's all opinion based, you know, there's going to be biases there. Yeah. And then uh, you guys talked about this a couple of podcasts ago, but uh, I guess it was about, uh, was it? Some sort of university chair head that you know, was caught with manipulating data and i wanted to know what would be your next approach if you found no one else knows but you found some manipulated data you know do you become the ohms bud or do you i guess the question is like you you found some manipulated data on a report that you know could change decisions what do you what do you do next i don't know i i mean maybe there's a middle ground to be found but i'm not a middle ground guy on this kind of issue me either you you've got to correct it like this like i just i have zero tolerance for that kind of thing um i, I even if the stakes are low like we got like i don't know i just i feel i i just have really complex and negative reactions towards that kind of thing immediately sure. and um i don't know if you've been following but there's actually been a lot of stuff that's happened with the lady at harvard no, I that we discussed so she sued the people that brought up the findings nah. against her for like 20 or $25 million or something like that. Ooh. But, and Harvard is, is in the process for the first time in Harvard's history of trying to remove her tenure. I mean, there, there's a whole saga of stuff going on. Um, and if you really like the gossipy type of stuff, this is really a really great follow. Well, I mean, like from, we, we've covered this kind of ad nauseum. The incentive structure of a professor, the publisher parish sort of model, would lead them yeah. to fabricate data. Uh, yeah, the incentives really aren't, aren't aligned properly. No, no, they are not. In a uh, people analytics function, I, I don't understand why someone would intentionally fabricate data to make a point. That that actually makes me more awkward than public speaking. Like if someone found miscalculated like error, I I I think I would rather be public speaking in front of a thousand people than someone point out where I made a mistake. Oh yeah. Like this gets back to like sort of like need for competence and you know, all these sort of kind of base uh ego drives we have. Uh, I mean, like a, a straight error, they, they, they happen. You know, you, you, yeah, you, know, yeah, you yeah. change the decimal point, you, like, you used uh, the, the wrong sort of whatever, you forgot 
uh, to whatever, but just like straight up fabricating data <laughs> for, you know, to like run analysis, be like, ha ha, we got significance between these two groups. Like, okay. Like why, <laughs> why did you do that? Exactly right. Like you could cost you your job. Why would you do that? I don't know. I, I don't understand. Yeah. It's, it's crazy to me. <laughs> Well, I think I think we've officially exhausted uh, this topic and episode today. But Dan, you you've been awesome. You you definitely um, exceeded my expectations of my hope of having you on here. So thanks for being a good sport, uh, Scott. Any final words for for Dan? Uh, yeah, Dan. Uh, no one's called you a jackass, and uh, we we will continue that streak. We we will not call you a jackass. Uh, super pleasure to have you on, man. Thank thanks for coming. Really appreciate it. Absolutely, guys. Uh, Awesome pleasure to be here. Um, again, keep it up because uh, I need something to listen to while I wash dishes at night. So uh, <laughs> appreciate everything you guys do. Um, love listening to it. And thanks for having me. Well, we, we appreciate the ability to contribute to doing household chores. And you've been listening to Directionally Correct, uh, People Analytics Podcast with Colin Scott and Dan George. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Thank you. As always, all opinions are owned and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.